McMaster University has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world, and they are some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we meet alumni in the arts, cutting edge entrepreneurs, alumni leading the way in health, technology, education, and more, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. I first met Avery McLean when she received our Young Alumni Award, the McMaster Arch Award, in 2005. Avery came to Mac for her graduate degree in music criticism after completing her undergraduate degree at McGill. A soloist and chamber musician, she has made guest appearances with the Mississauga Symphony and Toronto Philharmonic, to name just two, and has been featured on CBC and CGRT Radio, CBC and Bravo Television, and several film soundtracks. In addition to pursuing a rich musical career, Avery was co-founder of a successful startup, Usability Matters, a UX agency that offered research, strategy, and website design services between 2002 and 2017. And since 2017, she has held the position of Director of Research IT at the Research Institute for the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Join me as we learn more about Avery's unconventional journey and how her passion for music has influenced her career path in unexpected ways. So Avery, thank you for joining for our podcast, Unconventional. We're very pleased to have you today here as our, actually our first guest. I'm so pleased to be here. And I wanted to say, Karen, that I love the name of this podcast. So uh, I think it's the highest form of compliment to be considered unconventional. And I hope that what I share with you today during our conversation does some justice to your theme. Oh, well, excellent. Thank you very much. We're going to start off um, back in uh, days before McMaster and wondering what sparked your passion for music and the fine arts? Was it, you know, woke up one day and thought, I want to be a musician? Or was it just like sort of a slow journey through um, your youth? So for me, it's it's always been there. Um, music was always uh, in our in our home. My mother especially uh, constantly had had um, records and records vinyl <laughs> playing um in our home and uh so so music was always part of our life but um in terms of my particular interest which is in the field of medieval renaissance and baroque music and then later contemporary um this particularly became an interest for me because my mother's field of research is actually early english drama and as a child, I was lucky enough to play really minor theatrical roles in some of the reenactments of medieval pageants and mystery plays that she was producing. And that brought this world of theater and its music alive for me. Um, so it was really, it was something to share with my mother and, uh, and, and really in a very fun way. Then when I was around 13, um, my father, who's an Anglican priest, was doing innovative liturgies uh, involving young people. And I had uh, the opportunity to play my instrument at an amateur level, but in a way that felt like a significant contribution to something that was making a difference in people's lives. Um, and even all these years later, after playing to large audiences in the big halls in Toronto, like Roy Thompson Hall and Jane Mallet and the St. Lawrence Theater, um, North York Center for the Arts, playing Bach during a church service is still the most meaningful way for me to share music with others. Is music part of your life every day still? I would imagine it would be. So I must admit, I'm not practicing my instrument every day. Um, that had to, 
I now, uh, when I'm engaged to do a performance, then I'm, it's a bit like an athlete uh, getting back in shape for a, a big race or something. I have to take kind of two months in advance of the gig and start working my skills back up. Um, so I don't have a daily practice, but I'm certainly listening to music all the time and uh, consuming as many concerts as I can um, that my friends are performing in. So can you briefly walk us through your first few months after graduating with your master's from Mac and explain what that transition from an academic life to professional life was for you? Yeah, I'd love to share this part of my story. Um, this is, and I'm hoping that it reaches your, your audience in some way, because I can just, I really empathize with what people may be graduating from uh, under these current circumstances uh, into a pandemic, sort of launching into a pandemic. How do I find a job? Um, and there are just so many parallels with where I was at um, back in 1996 uh, when I graduated. So, um, I'll just set the scene for you. In 1996, uh, it was a period of economic recession in Canada. The unemployment rate was around 10%. And I had a couple of degrees in early music performance, and my instrument was the Baroque recorder. And that's that little plastic instrument you played. Did you play it, Karen, in grade two or grade three? You know, I never actually played the recorder, but I was a member of the band all through high school, a clarinet. I played a mean clarinet for a very brief point in my life and then retired it to the benefit of everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably would have had um, more financial prospects if you had continued your clarinet playing than I had as a recorder player. Um, so even though I played at a very high level, it's not a mainstream instrument. Right, so I right. always knew that there are no full-time uh, orchestra jobs for recorder players and that I would have to piece together different sources of work. I also had um, another very practical degree, uh, a master's in music criticism um, from McMaster University. But the CBC, where I'd aspired to working, perhaps as an associate producer, was beginning the painful process of laying off many of their younger staff. So that was the negative side. On the bright side, I had the beginning of a network in the early music scene in Toronto. And I was being invited to appear in chamber music concerts. I made enough money for groceries, but I couldn't pay the rent. So I lived with my patient and unfailingly supportive. <laughs> <laughs> so the fall after graduation, um, a music colleague in Toronto offered me a regular coaching opportunity. So every Wednesday evening, I coached recorder ensembles for three to four hours. I also had a handful of private students. And by Christmas, which is the busiest time for Baroque musicians, I had to confront the truth. I was so depleted from coaching ensembles that I had no energy or desire to practice my instrument and to prepare for the upcoming concerts. So this was a huge crisis. The thing that I loved most in the world was making music. And the obvious way to support that was with a regular income um, was through teaching. It's how my peers supplemented their freelance performing careers. And it was a model I'd grown up with from the age of six when I started taking music lessons. So learning this lesson in such a short period of time was probably the best thing that happened to me post-graduation. I figured out that Christmas that whatever else I did to generate an income had to bring me energy rather than sap my creativity and detract from the thing I love the most. So I set about networking to find a day job. That job had no real definition around it other than it had to be something that could offer an opportunity to learn about the world of nine to five work. It had to be nine to five because my concerts and rehearsals were in the evenings and on the weekends. 
So here's, I wanted to share this with you the, the first time um, that the Mac, McMaster connection uh, started working for me behind the scenes. And I've got a number of these little stories. Yeah. Um, through a colleague of my mother's, I learned about an organization called the Learning Partnership. And this is the organization behind uh, Take Our Kids to Work Day for grade nine students. You may have heard of yep. that. Yep. So I called the contact there. I introduced myself. I asked whether there were any volunteer opportunities. And the person on the other end of the phone seemed really intrigued and he asked for my CV and then he invited me in for a meet and greet. And unbeknownst to me, this individual whose name was Peter Butler was a McMaster grad and he was on the board of directors of a choir called the Bellarte Singers. And during my interview, he pulled out, we talked about McMaster, yeah. we talked about what I'd done there. And then he pulled out a promotional postcard of his choir and he said, is this you? And the photo was of a concert of the Monteverdi Vespers performed with a Baroque orchestra that I was starting up with some other Toronto musicians at the time. And Peter at, like offered me a full-time job as an administrative assistant. And I'm pretty sure I was hired on the merit of my recorder playing and our mutual love of music rather than my typing speed or organizational skills. Who says a recorder cannot lead to a career? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Peter gave me every opportunity to learn. And he's such a fantastic coach and mentor. Wow. So that's, that's how I found my first day job. Wow. It, it, it is a lot about, um, as people go along, it's the connections and you never know. Um, so, you know, one thing that I always do like to ask people is why did you choose to come to McMaster? What was it about McMaster? Cause you did your undergrad at McGill and I'm sure had a fabulous time at McGill and in Montreal. What made you choose Mac for your master's? So, uh, here's how naive I was. I thought that it would be uh, really practical to um, get a master's in music criticism. I thought, oh, I can take my love of music and I can write about it. I can become a music critic and I can write for a newspaper and that will be a nice little supplementary income stream. Um, I also was really interested in the, uh, the analytical approach and McMaster had the um, only master's in music criticism in North America, actually. It was a really innovative program. Um, so it stood out from doing a traditional thesis, uh, sort of master's or, or PhD thesis at one of the major music schools. So McMaster had, it, we like to call it musicology with a twist. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, I thought it would be very practical to, to graduate with this degree. But what I, I didn't calculate was the fact that there were, at the time, three, um, only three full-time music critics uh, paid by newspapers like the Toronto Star, um, the Globe and Mail, and the National Post were the only three papers that had full-time roles for music critics and even they downsized um, and only ended up using freelancers a few years after I graduated. So I'm really glad I did it, um, but it was by no means a master plan. So you went from um, getting your first job, uh, first full-time sort of job after university um, with a fine arts academic background, um, and then you transitioned to IT. So I'm really fascinated. Like your your job now is um, at the Hospital for Sick Children. And so often I think, you know, humanities uh, students and young graduates will say, okay, what can I do with my degree and where am I going to end up? And you've done probably a zigzag um, that most people wouldn't expect. So how did you end up um, at uh, the Sick Kids in Toronto? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna try to be discipline myself in telling the story, but it does start at McMaster in a way that I, I didn't expect. Um, so 
I think even though I was very naive about the world of work and I didn't have what you would call a master plan, um, I was I was strategic about a couple of things. And one was choosing to do my degrees at the schools that attracted other people who shared my interests. Um, and in a very practical way, this meant that I had other people to make music with who were better than I was and stretched my abilities. Um, so by the time I graduated, I was able to perform with confidence and I was, you know, had decent uh, technical and musical abilities. Um, another was paying attention to what was changing in the world around me. And I think this is, if there's any sort of wisdom in all of this, uh, that's the piece. So um, I started my undergrad degree at McGill. Uh, when I started, email was a novelty. Mm -hmm. So you could go to your university server room, obtain an email account and send messages through their servers, but not through a home computer. Um, and by the time I graduated McMaster with my master's degree, interactive multimedia was hot. I don't know if you remember CD-ROMs. I do. I do. I, um, I even met, remember eight tracks, but that's really going oh. back into the seventies. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Those are back. Those are yeah. I know. Um, and, uh, and the, the internet was being heralded as the most disruptive invention since the printing press. Um, so McMaster differed from the other two institutions I'd attended uh, by offering a really progressive approach to education that permeated all its faculties, including humanities. I know it was known for medicine and having this very different approach to teaching medical, uh, giving medical education, but um, in the, that, I think that that just percolated through all of the, the faculties. So when I approached my thesis proposal committee, I had this novel idea of developing an interactive multimedia thesis on 17th century music. I didn't know how to code, but I thought this could be an interesting project. And I received their um, enthusiastic endorsement and the committee chair, uh, who was Professor Bill Rennick, was a champion of this idea. Um, and it was quite unconventional at the time. So the, the McMaster Library representative on my committee raised a few concerns about how that CD would be shelved with the other bound theses. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Bill came up with this creative solution that satisfied their requirements. So again, I just, I was so grateful to him. And by the time I graduated, I taught myself a programming language. I produced the first multimedia humanities thesis in Ontario, and I'd learned a lot about the process and that I enjoyed it. And um, I want to mention that Fred Hall was my supervisor and ensured that there was an academic credibility to what I was doing as well. It wasn't just learning to, to code. Um, and he also, this is a really lovely thing that he did. He arranged for an interview with the Hamilton Spectator. Um, and so when I graduated and, and it was all about this sort of first CD-ROM thesis being produced. Um, and so that gave me a very helpful article to accompany my CV. Um, and so the CD-ROM thesis with that article was my ticket to the first three jobs um, I found after graduating. So in terms of wending my way from McMaster to IT, if you'll bear with me, I've got you know a couple of things I'd love to share. Um, and there were some struggles and opportunities along the path. It wasn't a straight and narrow path. Um, but I think these are things that uh, young people today are encountering in the, in the world of work. And so I'm hoping that, that some of this is relevant. Um, so there's always a bit of serendipity and there are some tough times in there as well. And the takeaway is that when things weren't going well in one area of my professional life, I always had that other iron in the fire to boost my spirits or tide me over financially and help me get to my next opportunity. 
there's this really fun interview with Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson that delves into this topic of having multiple projects on the go. Um, so there are definitely benefits to sort of moonlighting at one thing while you're trying to find that traditional uh, other, other thing that's going to put food on the table. So all of my traditional jobs um, for the first 10 years or so of my, um, uh, my professional life were in aid of providing me with a steady income to support my freelance musical career. So the caveat had to be that those jobs must be interesting, not energy depleting. Um, and I needed to have some passion for where I was spending eight hours a day, five days a week. So on the musical side, I was um, a founding member of this Baroque orchestra called the Aradia Ensemble, um, which provided an outlet for the next generation of early music specialists who were aspiring to be in an orchestra like uh, Tafel Music. Um, and Aradia landed a contract with the Naxos label and began an ambitious series of recordings, which paid next to nothing, but allowed us to have something to sell at our concerts. Um, and it won some critical acclaim. So my Aradia work led to my becoming a regular performer with a Baroque ensemble called our Baroque Trio. And this resulted in a really important connection to Sick Kids several years later. So on the nine to five side, after a year with Learning Partnership, an opportunity came calling through my network with a children's record label. And I've been a performer on one of the classical kids CDs and I was known to the producer, Susan Hammond. Um, she offered me the opportunity to be the concert and education coordinator for the classical kids concert series. And this felt like the perfect fit mm -hmm. using all my education, my degrees, introducing classical music to the next generation of children. Yeah, I got yeah. to work for the president, Michelle Henderson, whose father had been vice president of Motown Records in the 70s. There were pictures in Michelle's office of her dad, her siblings, and the Jackson Five. Now that's cool. Musical world. <laughs> yeah. so this has got to be my dream job. Yeah, right? absolutely. Two, two degrees of separation from the Jackson Five. However, after building the company's first website for them, sort of as a side project, um, just because I had the skills and I was interested and it was something Michelle needed to be done, um, I realized a couple of things. I was really enjoying the web development, which wasn't really in my job description. And the recording industry was, and this is where, you know, like paying attention to the world around you is so important. Um, the recording industry was not keeping up with the technologies on the horizon. So just for some context, Napster, the free file sharing service that upended and undermined the entire mm -hmm. recording industry launched in 1999. And that was right towards the end of my tenure in that job at Classical Kids. So again, the McMaster connection was there in the background. I knew I had to move, even though I was in my dream job, but I was like, huh, this isn't quite, this doesn't look like it's got runway ahead of it. So I cold called an ad agency that was looking for a digital media coordinator. And I sent my CV along with that Hamilton Spectator article um, about my thesis. And the HR contact was a McMaster grad. And so my, my package um, with the Spectator article caught his eye. He forwarded the CV along to the head of project management. And in the interview, the hiring manager began probing around my music background again. Mm -hmm. And it turned out he was an amateur recorder player as well. And we had studied with the same teachers as children. Again, I think I was hired more on the basis of shared interests and the passion that I brought than any particular skill set, and certainly not cr traditional credentials. But I think that's the great thing about entry level jobs. They're all about demonstrating potential if you're the applicant and recognizing potential if you're the recruiter. It's rarely a conversation about a significant contribution or value delivery at this stage of the game. So 
I'll skip skip ahead. There were a few. Um, the company went bankrupt, unfortunately. I lost my job. Uh, it was because we didn't know how to estimate. <laughs> we're all under the age of 30. We were building websites for like La Senza and Canadian Tire and sig Signature Vacations. We're doing really heady stuff for Fortune 100 companies in Canada, and we didn't know how to estimate. And, uh, and we didn't understand the value of the work that we were doing. Right. Um, and then the dot, the dot com boom and bust yeah. happened. So dot com bust and then 9-11. Right. And then the company went bankrupt and I was cast adrift. So here's where my connection, uh, my musical connection helped again. So um, I was on, uh, I was, I was performing regularly with this ensemble Arbor Oak Trio and I was singing in a choir and in the choir was a member of the board of Arbor Oak Trio and I confided in her and she offered to res uh, review my resume and just a few weeks after um, an opportunity came up at the hospital for sick children and she sent me a job posting and I never would have searched that job board. I wouldn't have recognized that job as something I was suited for. Um, and it was basically my trust in her judgment and our shared love of music that made me, you know, take a second look. Yeah. And that was in 2002. And just two months after I started, uh, the SARS outbreak happened, which is also a form of coronavirus. And I found myself in a really similar position to today, taking volunteer shifts as a screener at hospital entrances and giving out masks to patients on a volunteer basis. So it was quite the introduction to working at a hospital, but the level of commitment and compassion I experienced um, during that time helped me recognize I kind of found my home. Um, and so my first role there kind of, it, it brought together many of the threads of the things I'd done previously. So I was an information analyst um, and I really enjoyed the work, but I could see that it was, it was very niche. Um, there wasn't really an opportunity for advancement and so I had a number of jobs that I'd been in, you know, one or two years. Uh, the longest was three. And with this one, um, I loved the culture. I love being there. I was interested in the work, but I noticed that there really wasn't runway um, in, in front of me. And I noticed that the adjacent roles to mine, which were really well understood and valued by the organization, were in project management. So... Um, an organization like Sick Kids needs project management to manage strategic initiatives and help the organization evolve. Um, so with the support of a mentor, uh, I started practicing combining the requirement solicitation and analytical skills I had um, and that I brought from previous roles with um, some of the project management skills I'd acquired in my advertising concert coordination uh, roles. But it was kind of an unhappy period for me because um, even though I was being given opportunities to do interesting work, I really didn't know how to advocate for myself um, in terms of advancing my career from a title and compensation perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something people don't always uh, talk about, but I'd like to be, you know, really transparent yeah. with you um, that, you know, sometimes you can be doing real, do you can be doing really interesting work. Um, but you can feel underappreciated because, right. you know, you don't feel that, that you're advancing as quickly as your peers. And, um, and so then you have a choice to make, right? Like, do you move on to another company or do you try to stick it out and, and persuade people that, that you can do more than is being asked of you? So for me, the big um, dilemma that I was going through was that if I took on more responsibility, that that would take away from my ability to have a musical career. 
So that made me quite stagnant. I didn't know how to advocate for myself, but I was also afraid to advocate for myself because I was trying to protect my musical life, which was very active. And I was you know, really involved. It's your passion, right? It's your passion. You're trying to keep your passion in your life, which people need. Exactly. Exactly. So I spent about three to four years in this unhappy place um, where I was trying to find out, you know, where's my identity in, in all of this and how much do I advocate for myself and what's at risk if I do that. So it was after about three or four years that I recognized I wanted to get more out of my 40 hour work week at SickKids and that I would have to earn it by doing something that I've been putting off for quite a few years, which is obtaining accreditation in my field. Um, and that would give me the confidence to advocate for myself. Mm -hmm. So a big turning point for me in terms of the role I have today uh, was going back to school um, through the School for Continuing Studies and getting the necessary credential, which at the time was the PMP, which is the Project Management Professional Accreditation. So once I had this under my belt, I was able to advance so quickly through the organization. Um, so I, uh, I became a project manager in the, in the IT domain. Um, and then I did a brief stint at the Faculty of Medicine, U of T, as Associate Director for Applications. And now I'm back at SickKids as the role of IT Director for the Research Institute. So in terms of my technical skills, I was self-taught every step of the way. I've never taken a course in how to code or um, how to architect in infrastructure or how to administer a system. I've never done any of that, but I have done accreditation in terms of um, the management of that infrastructure. That is quite the journey. So one thing that I, I think I want to touch on is often undergraduate students and or you know, as they're getting ready to graduate or, or young graduates think that they have to have a master plan. And just listening to your, you know, your journey from McMaster to your current role. Um, let's see, depression, um, dot com boom, uh, experience at a bank company that went bankrupt, 9-11, um, SARS, and now COVID. So yeah. what would your be advice of people thinking that they have to have a master plan and knowing that the external world sometimes makes your experience in your job or your next one uh, that you really don't have control of? And how did you respond to those challenges when you probably did have a little bit of a, you, you probably did have a master plan, but there's other external forces that sometimes impede us. In particular, if we look today about graduates you know, um, heading out into the work world where, you know, six months ago, we would have said, oh, this would never happen. And now look at us all working from our bedrooms and our, um, our right. basements and, and, and trying to do, you know, the work, but in a very a different environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think one of the dangers, especially when you're young um, and, and graduating like straight out of school, there's this, like, A, there's a sense that what you've done isn't uh, going to be recognized by your potential employers. And so, um, you know, go back to school, get more degrees, get more accreditation. I, I actually don't believe in that. I see a lot of people with many, many letters after their names. Um, but to me, that's not as valuable as, uh, as, as experience and just going out and, and trying different things to really figure out who you are um, in, and what you enjoy. I didn't know the direction that I would have, that I was going in um, until I actually tried out those sort of master plan 
ideas. So figuring out between, you know, graduation and Christmas that I actually hated teaching <laughs> was really important. Um, and so I think, you know, when I was uh, an undergrad and, a, and also in grad school, my ideas about having a career as a musician were really abstract. They were really aspirational and they were really impractical. But I think that was a really a good thing. Um, if it had been a very programmatic series of steps, I will do this and then that and then the other, I would have been setting myself up for disappointment. So the assumptions I had about how, how I would leave, lead a life as a professional musician were really put to the test um, within four months of graduation. But I had this really strong belief system around university offering life enrichment and not a set of credentials. Mm -hmm. um, so university was this opportunity to immerse myself in my subject, learn how to analyze a question, learn how to communicate, learn how to collaborate with others as a chamber musician, mm -hmm. and that those things would be valued by the world of work. And then the really difficult part of that is the networking. So how do you convert that into those job opportunities? And Honestly, it is it is through the networking and um, learning how to represent yourself and your accomplishments in those conversations. Um, and I have I've been thinking about this because I, I want this to be relevant for your audience. And um, so I have a little bit of uh, a little bit of advice if if it's useful. Advice uh, is always useful. <laughs> <laughs> so this is me with my um, my director of research IT hat on. We have three positions open in our, uh, in, on our team right now. And I've got a small team of 26 people. So three positions is a lot. So right. just think about that. If, if anybody who's thinking there are no jobs because there's a pandemic, there are jobs and I'm hiring. Um, so, and there are many, there are many others as well. So I think, you know, looking for a job can feel like a daunting prospect. But as a grad, you know how to conduct research, you know how to analyze, you know how to synthesize ideas, and you've had practice presenting to an audience. So you've got the skills to nail an interview. Um, and there's this great tool that can help you prepare for the discipline of networking conversations and interviews, and it's called the STAR method, which involves describing, you describe a situation, so the S is for situation, in which you were involved that had a positive outcome. Then you describe the tasks, this is the T, um, involved in, um, the yeah the tasks involved and then you follow that up with the actions you took this is the a um, so the actions you took to achieve your results and then finally you describe the results which is the r you achieved um, to reach a positive outcome and it's a great way of relating an abstract question to whatever work experience you have in your past regardless of whether that's as a lifeguard working in a coffee shop university library teaching little children how to play the recorder um, or as a research analyst uh, for a professor, for example. So I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, what I look for because I work for a mission-driven children's hospital, uh, organizational fit is really important. So what I look for is, you know, are, have, are, is there any evidence that this candidate has done any community building through volunteer activities? Do they have any customer service experience? Um, are they trainable? Do they have an ego that will get in the way? I'm looking for that combination of confidence, but desire to learn and contribute. Um, and for those who don't have any experience, you're like, all I've done is babysit, um, which is a very important job. I have young children. So actually, <laughs> we I need babysitters. My, yeah, if I entrust my kid to a babysitter, yeah. that's the most important job in the world. Yeah. Um, but even if you don't feel that you've got the experience in the area you wish to work in, 
you can still address this with some creativity. So I've hired in young staff on the strength of things they've done on their own at home. Um, my youngest system administrator came to us having done some light tech support, uh, fixing computers for his faith community on occasion, but he built himself a Linux system from the ground up. And he was also experimenting with public cloud on his own dime. Um, and we hired him on the strength of this initiative and potential, not any kind of, uh, and he had, you know, he had great references mm -hmm. from his faith community, but basically it was, here's what I've done at home because I'm really interested in this. And he was able to talk about that and we were like, great, we'll train you. So I think, um, I think that's, those are hopefully some really practical uh, bits of advice. I'm not sure if I wound my way around to the essence of your question, but I just oh, that's good because I think often people when they when they first graduate they think oh I shouldn't put that you know I you know I was a camp counselor or um, I babysat or I worked at the grocery store or I was a waitress I mean one of the toughest jobs I ever had was a waitress you had to be you had to manage. Um, a whole bunch of different interests. You had timing, you had to do like all this stuff. And so I always look at those jobs and the volunteer jobs, especially for a young person coming out. And so I guess maybe our dual advice would be spend a little time on talking about those experiences and those challenges, because, you know, being a waitress, that was the hardest job I've ever had. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's all, that's all about customer service, right. And how you deal with conflict. Um, and those are those, those soft skills are, are everything um, in the new world of work. Yeah, they really are. So I would actually say that you're a little bit of a risk taker and an entrepreneur as well. You have that spirit in you and in that you founded and worked with numerous nonprofit organizations over the years. And that's a completely different um, set of skills and experiences. So is there any one or two that stand out from that experience that you use every day in your current role at SickKids from those experiences? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love this question. Thank you, Karen. Um, so I started out as a musician on the stage and, you know, love the applause. Uh, you know, there's this great gratification working up, you, know, you work really, really hard and then you stand up in front of people and you get the adulation and the appreciation for what you've done. Uh, but working on these startups uh, was such a humbling experience. And what I learned was being a member of uh, several boards of directors um, to, it really taught me what true commitment looks like. So these, the members of these boards brought tremendous amounts of their time, skill, and financial resources to creating concerts that in the end, they're so ephemeral and they're purely for the enjoyment of others. They, the people behind the scenes um, got no applause. They, they put their own money into it. Often they weren't even in the audience getting to enjoy it because they were doing little jobs behind the stage. Um, so they just, they quietly take their pleasure in creating a stage for others. And in IT, um, this has led me to have much more appreciation for the folks keeping the lights on and our systems secure. Uh, the system administrators, the database administrators, for example, these are people who are on call 24 seven for emergencies and they're never thought of when things are going well. So I go out of my way to highlight their contributions as a leader. And I also like to think that I approach my IT job like a chamber musician rather than a soloist. So a string quartet works because it has four equally important instruments playing independent but complementary parts. I try to bring this level of respect to all my interactions with my team and ensure that all their voices are heard. Yeah. 
So if we were to look in the future, five years from now, what do you see yourself professionally? Like, where do you see yourself professionally in the next five to 10 years? Looking into the, you know, if you could jump ahead, where will Avery be in five years? Yeah, so that's such a such a tough question because my career really hasn't played out that way. I've anytime I've set a long-term plan, I I've deviated from it. Yeah. Um so I love what I'm doing now. I think I've got my dream job, but I I also I also know that that's in large part because of the leaders I work for and the mission of my organization. Um so where the sick kids scientists are involved right now is in precision child health. And so I have a responsibility in my role for providing them with reliable, scalable, high-performance computing infrastructure to support their research. And some of them are involved in machine learning and predictive analytics. Uh, so I'm learning about how to support these new domains of data science, um, both from an infrastructure and a data architecture perspective. So this is new, a new domain for me. Um, machine learning and data analytics will drive the next chapter of my IT career. And I would also say to anyone listening who has an interest in data, um, you don't need to be a computer science grad and you don't need to be a machine learning scientist. Um, I think data literacy is the ticket to, uh, you know, the next 10 years. Um, so taking, picking up a few courses in data literacy um, will open doors across the industry for, for anyone, not just in IT, mm -hmm. advertising, in um you know, customer packaged goods and uh, logistics in all of these different areas. Uh, data literacy is so important. Um, so for me, I'm I'm trying to keep keep up with the scientists at SickKids and uh, and machine learning and and artificial intelligence are the the, the direction that they're taking. Um, so so that's that's really where my area of focus is. Um, but musically, uh, I want to acknowledge that the last six months has been pretty painful. Um, so despite being in IT, living in a virtual world most of the day, I find the Zoom experience for music making is really limiting. Mm -hmm. uh, I applaud my colleagues who are continuing to teach and perform and reach out to the community of music lovers through this medium. Um, but I, I've been opting out of, of those opportunities because I just, I'm, I'm finding that a little painful. So the one thing that I am involved in that I'd love to share with you is um, I'm part of a recorder ensemble with a talented group of colleagues uh, called ACTA. And we have a recording project that will record uh, recorder quartets and a quintet written by Canadian composers in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. Um, so some of these pieces were commissioned through the Canada Council for the Arts um, for one of the members of my ensemble. And she's leading the charge on making sure we record these pieces for posterities while the composers are still with us. So it's been really interesting to let the composers know that we're reviving these works. Um, and several have asked us to revise their original compositions. Uh, so they're kind of excited to see this music coming back to life. So that's a really important um, project, but we have to find funding for it. So I'm trying to trying to make a few things happen on the musical side to, yeah. to make a contribution there. Yeah. Oh, that sounds exciting. That's that's great that you continue to, you know, feed the passion in your life, right? With on the music side, which music is even more and more important, I think, today. Like I think, you know, I think I've listened to more music since I've been home and it's been um very helpful as we yes. sort of, you know, go through this together as a society. A balm for the soul, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. All right. So we're we're at the end and we're going to do something for most of our podcasts. We're going to do a little bit what we call rapid fire questions to learn a little bit more about Avery. So I'm going to start off with, because you're a musician, 
What's one song that best describes your time at McMaster and why? <laughs> That's such a tough one to ask a musician. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with uh, Jimmy Cliff's version of I Can See Clearly Now. Okay. Uh, yeah. By Johnny yeah. Nash. Uh, it was real, and uh, it was actually released in 94. So around that time, uh, I was at McMaster. Um, and I just love, I love the lyric, which is, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, sunshiny day. Oh, that's, that's a great one. Yeah. Um, best COVID purchase? My Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> I think staying fit is the key to mental health through this pandemic. Yeah. What books are you reading now? What's, what's on your night, uh, your night table? Hmm. I'd like to know what's on your night table, Karen, then I'll answer. Oh, well, yes, actually, I just um, bought a book that I'm going to start reading tomorrow. So I'll say it's called The Sixth Extinction. So um, we have a book club now and that's our next uh, selection. So um, I think it's going to be it's going to be fascinating, but also maybe a little scary as I think about when they say the sixth extinction, I'm like, oh dear, oh dear. It's a little apocalyptic. It does, but I think it. I think there's hope in it. I'm hoping that there's hope in it. So uh, I'm actually very much looking forward to that. I, I try really hard to read a fiction book and then switch to a nonfiction book. So we have the balance. So That's really um, yeah. So I just yeah, we all need a bit of escapism. I think. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's interesting. Um, yeah. So my, so I'm going to write that down because that sounds very interesting. I'm always looking for new books to read yeah. and I, I uh, find them through, through personal connections rather than um, lists of like yep. New York Times bestsellers and so on. Um, so the one that's on my list that I'm reading right now is Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. So nonfiction. Um, so it's a leadership, leadership book. Uh, she's got this great Netflix series or a Netflix show um, uh, so if you, if you search for Brene Brown, um, you'll find her. It's so entertaining. Um, and she also did a Ted talk a few years ago that really launched her career. So I'm starting to having watched, consumed those two things and really liked her. I've started to dig into her, her yep. work. Um, and then the next one on my list is so, uh, Sonia Renee Taylor's The Body is Not an Apology, which is about um, really helping me to learn more about equity, diversity, and inclusion, which is a very important uh, theme at SickKids right now and I think across society. Um, so I'm going to try to challenge myself a bit by writing, reading her, her work. She's a fantastic uh, speaker. Yeah, reading is so important. What living person do you most admire? Greta Thunberg. Ah, and why? So she inspires me and she inspires my kids. Um, she's got this single-minded and unyielding focus on environmental issues. Um, she's got courage and she uses humor and she stands up to bullies. Yep. That's, uh, that's a pretty good pick. And one song, uh, sorry, um, what's your favorite memory of McMaster? So going to meetings with my supervisor, Fred Hall, uh, Dr. Fred Hall, mm -hmm. um, he, he asked such insightful questions um, and they would always send me back to the drawing board to ponder for the next, next six to eight weeks. So he taught me the value of a really carefully constructed question um, and that it's okay when you don't have the answers, but like a good question gives you so much, so much room for investigation and exploration. So I am so grateful to him for that. 
Yeah. Brett is a, Brett is a great guy. He's been retired now for a couple of years. I see him occasionally. He lives in Dundas like I do. So, uh, oh, nice. yeah, I'll have to say to him that I saw you virtually. Yeah. Please do. Please do. He's been such an important, um, uh, part of my, both my master, McMaster career, but also beyond. He, yeah. he came to some of my concerts. He's uh, been wonderful. Yeah. And so as we wrap up, Avery, uh, one piece of advice you'd like to give to, um, you know, our students and young alumni, if you had one, one thing you wanted to leave with them today, what would that be? So I think we've talked about how master plans aren't that useful. Yep. Um, I think being authentic is very important. Being, watching how the world is changing around you and paying attention to that is incredibly important. And trying new things, taking some risks, um, but also also recognizing when it's time to move on. Um, I think I think that those are those are key for at least the first three to five years after graduation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for being our first guest. And um, I wish you and your family and your colleagues all the best in the next few months as we get um, through the next time period. And uh, know that there will be lots of music and joy in, in your household, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank okay. you, Karen. And I wish the same to you and to Owen, um, our sound engineer today. Uh, really, really appreciate this time and the thoughtful questions and the great conversation. And I'm I apologize that it wasn't more of a two-way. I think I talked a bit too much, but I uh, I had fun. It was me too. All right, great. Mm -hmm.